0: Well, today we are nearing the close of the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, we will uh, finish up this letter next week. Pastor Jim will will close out our time in 1 Peter that began, I think, in January. Um, but today, as, as we read this, I uh, just want to remind you of where we are in the text. Uh, last week, uh, after really through much of the letter, Peter has, has talked about the idea of being in exile or facing difficulties facing suffering. Uh, last week, he exhorted the elders. He exhorted the elders who are shepherding the sheep. And uh, we got to listen in on that. Uh, at the end of that passage last week in verse 5, he says, he talks to those who are younger. And then in the middle of verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And it's really that idea that, that he continues on in our passage today. Uh, that he's speaking to all of us about humility as he begins this. And as we uh, prepare to read this text, um, there's two metaphors that have been uh, kind of present throughout this letter that I think will help us better hear and understand what Peter's saying. One of those uh, metaphors, like I said, is, is that of being in exile, right? Throughout this whole letter from the very beginning when Peter said to, that he's writing to the elect exiles, and then throughout the letter, he's talked about suffering, trial, difficulty, that there is a glory and an imperishable inheritance to come, but it's not here yet. Uh, so that idea of exile comes up again today. And the other metaphor that is helpful is what he, he talked about in just the previous few verses, that we are a flock of sheep, that we are our needy sheep uh, before uh, the care of our shepherd. So there's, there's the trial and non-comfort of exile. There's the neediness of sheep. And so just listen to these things as we read God's word. But would you stand as we hear God speak in his word? This is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. It's printed in your bulletin or you can find it in your own copy of scripture. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. God. Father, we ask that you speak through this, your word. God, you tell us, In John, that your sheep recognize your voice, and we ask now that you would help us to hear your voice, and God, that you would firm up our faith through what you've given us here. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please be seated. As I mentioned, uh, these themes of exile, these themes of of being a sheep show up here, and um, I think what what we just read, in, in many ways, it feels like the end of the letter, And and it is, so it makes sense, but it it just kind of feels like this, it's the close. Uh, It's this culminating close that Peter gives us here. And after spending four and a half chapters of talking about exile and suffering and difficulty and hope, what we have here is really these, these two massive exhortations, these two massive commandments, one related to God, one related to our enemy, as well as... Massive promises that will hold us, that will reassure us. In essence, Peter here is urging us to be firm in our faith. To to hold to a firmness of faith as we endure exile. And you see that spelled out in verse 9. In speaking about the devil, he says, Resist him, firm in your faith. We see that phrase explicit there. But the idea of being firm in our faith, of being strong in our trust of the Lord, really covers throughout the whole passage. And so, I just want to ask and and think together, what what does it mean mean to be firm in our faith? What does it mean for you to be firm and to be strong in your faith? As you encounter suffering and difficulty, as you encounter the anxieties of exile that Peter's talked about, what does firmness of faith look like? And, and even once we get a picture of what it looks like, how can we be firm in our faith? After all, we're, we're sheep. We're weak and needy sheep. We're exiles who are facing difficulty. How, how can Peter tell us to be firm, to be strong, while we face these things? So, so Peter focuses on these two things of what is firm faith and how can we be firm in our faith? And what we'll see is that firm faith looks like humbly entrusting yourself to God, watchfully resisting Satan, your enemy, and holding on to an enduring hope all in this life of exile, all while we wait our days in exile. So humility, resistance, and hope. And so, first, uh, Peter begins his exhortation here, and he says, Humble yourselves, therefore. Be, be humble. Be willing to be made low. Be okay with it. Be content with a posture of humility. And he's, he's following up what he just said in verse five when he quotes Proverbs, and he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, so be humble because God opposes the proud. Be humble because God gives grace, favor, help to the humble. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So this phrase, mighty hand of God, it it strongly echoes the Exodus story. It's with God's mighty hand that he rescued Israel out of slavery and out of the dominion of Pharaoh. It's with his mighty hand that he pulled them out and he sent, him, sent them to his promised land. And so as we hear this, Peter's saying, humble yourself under the powerful rescuing hand of God. So, so what, is, what does that mean though? What does it mean to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Well, I think Peter's already told us back in chapter 4. If you look at verse 19, he says let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We we humbly entrust ourselves to God in a life of suffering as we trust him in those circumstances. In the difficulty, we accept it as part of what God is doing. Throughout the letter Peter has has shown us that really suffering and trial is normal. It's not an exception for the Christian. It's, it's normal for us. We should expect difficulty and trial of, of all different kinds. The commentator Karen Jobes, I think, is, is helpful here. She says that this is a command to accept but not to seek difficult circumstances as part of God's deliverance. Those difficult circumstances in your life, whatever they are, are part of what God is doing as he's rescuing you. So in the midst of trial and difficulty, do you rail against God? Do you rage against those causing the difficulty? Or do you humbly submit to God and what he's doing in you and through you? Knowing it's part of his deliverance. And so we we humble ourselves now. And part of the reason that Peter gives is because we know God will exalt us later. At the proper time. That exaltation may not come during exile, may not come right now, but humble yourself now because you know God will exalt you with his mighty hand later when you are fully rescued. So Peter continues here in verse 7 with, I think, one of the most well-known phrases, one of the most well-known verses of this whole letter. He says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And this is such a comforting, beautiful, helpful verse. But a few years ago, when I was reading it, I all of a sudden realized that verse seven follows verse six. And I wonder, what, what does casting your anxieties on him, verse seven? What does this have to do with humbling ourselves under his mighty hand in verse six? How are these two things linked? Because for Peter, it's the same thought. It's the same command. I think what, what we read earlier in Psalm 55 is helpful. Uh, I've, I've been, the past week or two, I've been reading a lot, lot of Psalms. I mean, there's so many Psalms where it's, it's a difficult situ- situation and the Psalmist is crying out to God for help. That's what we read in Psalm 55. That's what we sang in Psalm 13. And I think it's helpful for us here is that these Christians are facing difficulty. They're facing anxieties. They're facing trials. And so for for these first century believers living in in a polytheistic society with multiple gods, all sorts of different religious standpoints except for the one true God, they're facing all sorts of difficulties. They might be facing loss of family status, loss of respect, loss of one's livelihood, loss of friends, loss perhaps in extreme cases of one's life. For them, that's what their Christianly suffering looks like. It looks like loss of many of those things. And so when Peter says, cast your anxieties on him, these are those anxieties. They they are facing loss and difficulty. That brings up anxieties for them. In fact, the the command in verse 6 to humble yourselves under God, it looks like casting your anxieties on him. These are really the same thing. If you are casting your anxieties on him, then you are humbling yourself under God. If you're not, then you are not humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. In many ways, Peter is telling us here that the things that burden you hurl those burdens upon the shoulders of the Lord. I think of my children and how silly it would be if they were burdened, anxiously burdened by What are we going to eat for dinner? What what will we have? Will we have food tonight? Will we have food tomorrow? How can we do this? Will we have a place to sleep? Will our home be warm? Because those are my burdens. Those are the things that are upon my shoulders, not upon theirs. And I think Peter's telling us something similar. The anxieties that weigh upon our shoulders, maybe they're fit for God's shoulders and not for ours. And that we are to cast them upon him. Jesus tells us much the same thing in Matthew 6 when he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So casting our anxieties on him is entrusting ourselves to him with humility. And Peter adds here, at the end of verse 7 That we cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. God cares for you. God sees you. God knows you. God hears and knows every burden that weighs upon you. And he cares. You, You might reword this verse to say, cast your concerns upon the Lord because you are his concern." The Lord is concerned for you. And so ask yourself, am I casting my anxieties upon him? Do do I actually do this? Do I cast my anxieties upon him in prayer? How much does the burden have to pile up for you to finally cast it on the Lord? With the anxieties of life that, that we face, I think there's a couple options of what we might do with them. One thing we might do with all these burdens is just ignore them. Pretend they're not there, stuff them in the closet and act like they don't exist. Something else we might do is is a burden silence that we dare not speak of these things to the Lord. Perhaps you're prone to take them on yourself. I've got this. I can do this. I can take them all on myself. I'm strong. Perhaps you, you rage against God and you rail against those causing the difficulties and you're just angry at the difficulty. Or maybe, like Peter's telling us here, you cast your anxieties, you hurl them upon the Lord. Mark Vrogop, in a book about learning to lament as a Christian, writes this about giving God the silent treatment, about that option. He says, to pray in pain even with the messy struggle and tough questions, is an act of faith where we open up our hearts to God. Prayerful lament is better than silence. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, He doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying. And so people of God, you can cast your anxieties upon God. You can pray them upon him and throw them upon him because he cares for you, because he holds you with his mighty delivering hand, and because in your humility, he will exalt you at the proper time. So Peter shifts our focus here at the end of verse 7 as he gets into verse 8 from thinking about life under God And the difficulties we face. And he focuses on a different difficulty. (laughs) On the difficulty that that we have a very real enemy who wants to attack and devour us. Throughout the letter, he's a couple times talked about the sinful desires within. That we we have a war waging within. That we're being tempted by our own desires. But here he adds to that. That we have an enemy outside of us who is attacking us as well. And so, he tells us to be sober-minded. And he tells us to be watchful. To be sober-minded is to think clearly, to have a clear head about you, to be aware, to, to be thinking right and not be distracted or foolish, and to be watchful. He's saying, be alert, be on guard, be awake. To be sober-minded, be watchful. And, and to do that, we've got to know the enemy's nature, and we've got to know the enemy's limits. First, the enemy's nature. Think about the picture that Peter gives us here. He says, The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, you probably, like me, think of your picture of a lion is what you've seen on TV or what you've seen at the zoo behind a nice you know, fence or cage of sorts. And that gives you a sense of a lion, but perhaps for some of these first century Christians reading this letter that Peter wrote to them, they, they might have actually witnessed human blood dripping from a lion at the hands of Rome. That, that may be part of their picture of a lion, that they have it a little bit more firsthand for us than us. Peter also adds to this at the beginning. He says, your adversary, the devil, your adversary. This means that Satan is your enemy and it also has this connotation of being the accuser, which is, we see that also of Satan throughout scripture, that Satan wants to, is your enemy who wants to tear you apart, but he also wants to accuse you and he will lie and deceive you to do that. Ultimately here, Satan wants to devour you. He wants to get his teeth upon you and pull you back into the ways of the world, back to the sins of the world, back from trusting God and his care for you. That is his aim. Nothing less than that. He does this by luring you, by deceiving you, by lying to you, and by accusing you. Think about temptation that Satan gives to you. Every temptation that Satan gives, he only tells you half of the story. Right? He just wants you to see the good part. He doesn't tell you what he's really after. He doesn't tell you, I'm trying to destroy you. But he is. Every temptation to sin that you face is a temptation that wants to destroy you. And it's a deception. It's a lie. Satan also accuses you. If, if you have listened to the children's sermon that Jim posted, or if you haven't, you can go listen to it after this. But Jim talks about the fact that our, our siblings know how to push our buttons. Not only our siblings, but maybe friends and and other family. We know how to push each other's buttons. We know the things that get under our skin. Satan knows how to push your buttons. He knows how to accuse you and to deceive you in just the right way. He knows what flavor of temptation you like. And so he will whisper to you. He will accuse you that your sin is too much, that you have gone too far, that God dare not forgive you or be gracious to you or love you anymore. But it is a lie. It is an accusation that Satan hurls at you, but it is a lie. It is a deception. It is in an attempt to destroy you. And so you might be thinking this, this picture of Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and after all, I'm just a sheep. That's what Peter has told me. This picture does not give me sober-mindedness and watchfulness. It gives me anxiety. It gives me fear because what am I to do against a lion? But it's noteworthy that Peter, he doesn't tell us fear this lion. No, our, our enemy is vicious, but our enemy is also restrained. Satan does not have free reign on you. He cannot do whatever he pleases. That liberty belongs to the sovereign God who's got you with his mighty hand. You can think in in the Old Testament when when, uh, Satan wants to attack Job, he comes before God, he has to get permission, and he can only do what God allows him to do. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Satan does not have free reign on you. He can only do, he can only go so far as your shepherd allows him to. So should we fear Satan? Should we fear this roaring lion? No. We can look back at what Peter said in 1 Peter 3 when he was talking to wives. He said, wives, do not fear anything that is frightening. Here, do not fear this frightening picture of a lion. Don't fear him. Resist him. That's where he goes in verse 9. Resist, oppose, stand firm against him. James gives us the same command in his letter. And he adds, resist Satan and he will flee from you. Picture it. This lion fleeing from a little lamb who has resisted him. And so if we think soberly, if we're sober-minded, if we're watchful, we will become aware. You will become more aware of Satan's attacks on you. You will realize that that it's not just um, a trivial temptation. It doesn't, you can't just give into this temptation. It doesn't mean anything. No, you will realize that temptation has teeth, that it is Satan behind it, and it is him trying to devour you. So we've got to be watchful, but we've, we've also got to resist. As we become aware, we must resist. So when you're tempted to lose hope, do you resist it? Do you oppose it? When you're tempted to to lust or to covet or to envy or to take and want that which is not yours, do you stand firm against it and oppose that temptation? When you're tempted to let anger stew and bitterness take root and that harsh word slip from your tongue, do you stand firm and say, no, I will oppose this temptation? And Peter tells us the only way we can stand firm is in our faith. Resist him, Firm in your faith. And faith is not, as as some often think of it, faith is not a positive outlook. It's not just thinking positively and being optimistic that it will all work out in the end. Faith is not just confidence. I can do this. No, faith actually acknowledges that I am weak and I am needy and there is a roaring lion around me. Faith acknowledges that but it also acknowledges that I have a faithful shepherd and that my faithful shepherd is more powerful than that lion and he is taking care of me and he has me with his mighty hand. And faith acknowledges and takes hold of God's weaponry that he has given us. God has not left us unable to resist, unable to fight. In Ephesians 6, Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Grab hold of what God has given so that you may stand firm against Satan. It's it's by faith that we grab hold of the promises that God has given and those accusations from Satan lose their power. It's by faith that we go to God in his word, the sword of the spirit, and that we know it. We read it. We meditate upon it. We talk with others about it. We sit under it as it's preached Lord's Day by Lord's Day. It's by faith that we cling to God's word. And when Satan hurls his temptations at us, we see the lies that they are. It's by faith that in our trials and in our need, we know that we can pray and God will hear us. And that he cares for us. It's by faith that when Satan hurls that accusation at you that you are unworthy and unloved, that we remember that we are righteous because of Jesus Christ and that he has rescued us and it's his blood that covers us. It's by faith that we remember that. It's by faith that our, it's by these promises that our faith is is made firm. I think Edmund Clowney is, is spot on in diagnosing our danger. He says, The danger to the Christian is not that he is helpless before the devil. The danger to the Christian is that he will fail to resist. Your danger is that you will fail to resist. He says that the danger is that he will not watch and pray, that he will not put on the whole armor of God and take the sword of the Spirit. That sword, the word of God, was the weapon Jesus used in his ordeal in the desert It is ours to use in his name. Your danger is not that you can't resist that temptation from Satan or that accusation. Your danger is that you won't take hold of what God has given. So maybe today you need to be reminded of the viciousness of Satan. Maybe you need that picture of him as a roaring, prowling lion, kind of imprinted a little bit on your mind because for you, perhaps, you've been slumbered into ignoring him. Really, you're, you're asleep. Temptation comes at you and, and you don't even see it as temptation. You think it's something that you can play with and it won't do any damage. You don't know that it leads to death and that it's Satan trying to devour you. If that's where you're at, then wake up. Be alert. He wants to devour you. Maybe today... You don't have any, any trouble realizing that he's a roaring lion. Maybe you need to know that you have been given the ability by faith to resist him. Maybe you need to hear that God has equipped you and God is watching over you and Satan does not have free reign on you. One of the ways that Satan comes at us is in his temptations is he, he tempts us toward whatever he's tempting us to, but he, he packages with it this lie that you have to take the bait. He whispers to you, you've got to do this. There's no way out. You are too weak. You are not strong enough. You cannot overcome this. The only way through it is by taking the bait and taking the temptation. That is a lie. That is not true. God has equipped you to resist by faith, to resist him. So Christian, how is your watchfulness and how is your resistance? And how might God firm up your faith in this? I'm going to give you a couple thoughts on on how he might firm up your faith. One, grab hold of the sword of the Spirit. (laughs) Grab hold of God's Word. Sit in it daily. Read it. Let him speak to you through it and equip you in it. That is your sword. Don't take that lightly. Secondly, know God's promises. Satan's accusations and his temptations are so much more powerful when you do not know what God has promised. But when you know the things God has promised, that extinguishes the flaming darts of what Satan comes at you with. So know his promises. Thirdly, don't be a lone sheep. Right, We've all seen... That, that scene where the lion's just sitting there waiting for one of the gazelles to drift off from the pack. And that gazelle is done when he drifts off. He is no match. So don't be a lone sheep. Be part of the flock. You can look at even what Peter says at the end of verse 9. There's a sense of camaraderie, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I had a, a brother, one of our brothers here, earlier this week tell me, I, of course, need to confess my sins to God, but I also need to be confessing my sins and sharing my temptations with other believers so that they can be with me and help me. Fourth and final, entrust yourself to the prayerful care of your shepherd elders here. We delight to pray for you, to know you, and to know what temptations Satan brings your way so that we can help you and we can pray with you. Let us prayerfully care for you. So again, Peter Peter has covered some massive things. (laughs) Humbly submit yourself to God, casting your anxieties on him. Resist Satan. Do these things in faith, in trust of God. And now he, he, he gives us a word of promise, a word of hope, a word of assurance. In verse 10 he says, After you've suffered a little while. Suffering has been throughout this letter. Peter's made it clear that suffering and trial are part and parcel of the Christian life. Sometimes it's just kind of normal suffering that every person experiences. Sometimes it's peculiar Christianly suffering that we face. Sometimes it's suffering as we battle sa- uh, sin within. Sometimes it's suffering as we battle Satan without but we know suffering but what a word of hope Peter gives here the suffering is just for a little while it's just for a short time because when we are in glory with him when we are with God when he rescues us fully we can look back on this and it is just a blip on the radar it was just a short amount of time compared to eternity in glory When you're in the middle of difficulty, when you're in the middle of the darkness of the trial, it doesn't seem short, does it? It doesn't, it may not seem like the sun's going to come up. It just, all you know is darkness and difficulty and suffering and trial. But how does that change when you know that it's just a short while before the sun comes up? It's just a short while before all that you hope for is realized the daily casting of our anxieties upon God, the daily resisting of Satan that we encounter, it's just a short while. It's not going to last forever. God will fully rescue us. And so Peter points us to the God of all grace here. He wants us to remember that all grace comes from God. All favor, all goodness comes from him. He is the source of it all. And that God of all grace, he has already called you to himself. He has called you to himself. That has already happened in Christ. And he has begun to save you with his mighty hand. And what he's begun to do, he will not fail to finish. It is unbreakably linked. He will finish your salvation. And Peter describes it as, as his eternal glory. And in that time, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All of the weakness and the neediness and the trial we know of right now, one day all we will know is restoration, confirmation, strengthening, and being established. And so though life in exile, kind of this side of Jesus' return, life in exile looks like difficulty and suffering and trial in a multitude of ways. For the Christian, it also looks like a life of hope. It's difficulty, but marked by hope of what's to come. And so, brothers and sisters, do you you think upon what is to come? Do you think upon what God is bringing, upon the restoration that's coming? Or do the difficulties of this life sometimes eclipse that brightness? Grab hold of the hope that w- that, of what's to be ours, so that you can have hope today. At the time that Peter wrote this letter in first century in Asia Minor, it may have certainly seemed to, to everyone that Rome had the dominion. They were the powerful ones. They had dominion, even over the Christians, it seemed. They were the ones at whose hands sometimes there was unjust suffering. Or perhaps once you look past that, maybe you think, well, there's this roaring lion who, uh, who just persistently tempts me and persistently accuses me. Maybe the dominion belongs to him. Peter says, no. Verse 11, to him, our God of all grace, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. He looks to the eternal kingship, rule, dominion of Christ himself, and that's where he lands. So Christian, does the dominion and the rule and the authority belong to the difficulties that you face? Does it belong to Satan who pesters you and wants to devour you? No. The dominion belongs to the God of all grace who has grabbed you with his mighty hand and who will himself restore you in eternal glory one day. The very thing here that Peter praises God for is the very thing that will actually hold us in life in exile. He praises God that his is the dominion, that he is the king forever. That's the very thing that will firm up your faith as you face anxieties, as you face difficulties, as you face temptations, as you face accusations. If you remember, God is the king. His is the dominion forever. He is my king And I am under his hand. So brothers and sisters, do you sometimes feel weak? Do you sometimes feel needy and helpless and just like a sheep who is so needy? Or like an exile who's just perpetually in exile? Peter tells us, look to the dominion of our king. Not only look to it, actually give him praise. When you are facing difficulty this week or when you are facing temptation this week, look at 1 Peter five eleven, and say, to my God belongs dominion. To, to my God belongs the eternal kingdom. And I will praise him right now in the midst of difficulty and temptation. I will give him praise and honor right now. And that very thing will give you rest, will give you security, and that very reality will firm up your faith. That is where we get firm faith from, is that we have an eternal king to whom belongs dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise right now that you are the rescuing, saving, ruling God. Lord God, there is none who can thwart your power. There is none who will take your reign. And Lord, we long for the day when you return and when you restore us and strengthen us. Father, I pray for all of us that you would firm up our faith this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.